Welcome to the First Church Orlando podcast. Here you will find recordings of weekly sermons, devotions, interviews, and seminar recordings from the First United Methodist Church of Orlando. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the podcast. couple of words of introduction. Maybe you know this already, but starting with my name, that's John Dominic Crossan. Why can't I be normal and say John D. Crossan like ordinary people? It sounds so pretentious to me. The reason is fairly important. In 1950, I was 16 years of age and having nothing else to do, I decided to join a monastery. When you go into a monastery, they wipe out your past your old name, like in the Bible, when you get a new vocation, and they give you a new name. So wipe out the past, give you a future. So I was John Crossan. Went into the monastery, and I immediately became Brother Dominic, and eventually Father Dominic. So 19 years later, suddenly realized that celibacy was vastly overrated. (laughs) Decided to leave the monastery and get married. But... With that one exception, I was taking everything else with me. So I stuck Dominic in the middle. It has no legal standing whatsoever. My government knows me as John, the uh, passports, uh, TSA, remember TSA? TSA, uh, driving license, John. Government knows me as John, God knows me as Dom, and they, for the last four years, have not been on speaking terms, so there's no confusion whatsoever. Anyone who knows me knows me as Dominic or Dom. That's the way I think of myself, all right? Second piece of autobiography, if you'll indulge me. Exactly 20 years ago today, at 10 o'clock, I was at Averett University in Danville, Virginia, which is just across the North Carolina border. I was giving a lecture on Jesus and violence. 10 o'clock in the morning, of 9.21. Most of the students coming to a lecture at 10 had got up maybe at 9.55 probably and had no idea what was going on. We got a glimpse of it as we were robing. So 20 years ago today, Jesus and violence. I leave it to yourselves to decide whether we are better after 20 years. But in my own case, I sat in that motel room until Thursday, couldn't take it anymore waiting for flights that would never be allowed. They kept telling you every day. I finally went, rented a car, and drove 12 hours straight down 95 to get home to Sarah. So that's my autobiography for 9-11. Now, what we're going to do here, two lectures. One is explicitly, totally from the Old Testament. The second from the New Testament. I'm making this distinction just for the moment. In each case, I'm going to begin with images. Images. I'll talk through them. They'll be showing up there, of course, and I'll be talking about them. And then I'll come back here and talk some more before our questions and answer. Please take the images seriously. Don't think they're just kind of visual aids. This is a visual aid. These are the thing itself. I want to show you these images because the first thing I want to discuss is to think about the Old Testament as if the New Testament never existed. Just for this morning, we're going to look at the Old Testament. And I want to ask, is there in the Old Testament itself, we're not talking about Jesus, is there glimpses in the Old Testament, stronger than glimpses in the Old Testament, that somehow or other, this, this violent God, there's something wrong. Is it there in the Old Testament itself, or if you prefer the Hebrew Bible? So I'm going to go back now and start the images, but take a look at these while we're going. The hard cover to the left, the soft cover to the right, and of course, the key word in there was still. When I said to my editors to propose the book to Harper One in San Francisco, they went with the book on the title alone. They went with the book on the word still alone, because obviously you read the Bible to be a Christian, so how could you read the Bible Some I have to wrestle to be a Christian. All right. 
Hang on. Okay, you hear me. You see the, the key question up there is the violence of God. And of course, you cannot answer it by the cliche we always, the libel we always get that, well, the Old Testament is a, is a God of vengeance and violence, but the New Testament is a God of mercy and love, which really sounds good unless you make the mistake of reading the Bible. In which case, as you all know too well, the most violent book in the entire Bible. I taught world religions for 26 years at DePaul. The most violent book in the canonical literature of all the world's religions is the book of Revelation. So you can't get away with that by saying bad, bad God, Old Testament, good God, New Testament. So this morning, the first lecture, I'm going to compare sanctioned theology and Sabbath theology. Don't worry if you don't know what that means. You're not supposed to, because I invented those terms, more or less. But we'll get to it in a minute. The first question I want to ask, when the first time you hear, when the first time the Bible describes violence, which by coincidence is the first time you ever get the word sin, What does God seem to think about human violence? Chapter 4 of Genesis is like a desperate attempt by God to stop the growth of human violence. Before we even get to projecting our violence onto God and having God presumably do what we would do, I want to look at the story in Genesis chapter 4, the parable of human evolution since the Neolithic or the agricultural age. We're talking about 10,000 years ago about. The story you can see on that beautiful piece of ivory up above, it's from Salerno. There's a whole set of Old Testament and New Testament scenes. You can see Cain to left, taking his gift to God, Abel to right, one taking the grain, the other taking the sheep. And God, as you see the hand coming down, prefers Abel. Now, that's simply because the Old Testament God is countercultural and says everyone prefers the older son to the younger son. God goes for the younger son. I don't see any evidence he prefers sheep to grain. Then, of course, you see in the next what happens is Cain kills Abel. Also notice that what God does is not exact vengeance. No vengeance is exacted on, on Cain for the murder. He is marked for non-violence. The scene on one hand is a kind of a contradiction because you're supposed to be imagining only four people in the world, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, but obviously there's tribal, tribal enclaves behind them. So Cain is the farmer. And the background of this is the Sumerian story of the twin brother gods, the god the farmer god and the herder god. In the Sumerian story, they managed to reconcile and live together. The biblical story is more historically accurate, I think. The farmer Cain, the herder Abel, and you know all too well what happens. The farmer kills the herder. And by the way, I'd, I'd like to thank my beloved Sarah for the marvelous cutouts that you can see on these from the originals. So the farmer kills the herder and builds the first city. Can I read Genesis 4 and we, he builds the first city. It's built by Cain. And of course, as we know in the long drag of history, the city will eventually kill the farmer. All right, now here's the point. Imagine God trying to say, how do I stop this? First of all, Cain, after he killed, well, when he's thinking about killing Abel, God says to him, this is Genesis 4, God says to him, sin, first time sin is ever mentioned in the Bible. God says sin is crouching at the door. He's imagining him like in the desert in a tent. And sin is like a feral animal crouching at the door, waiting to get you when you come out. But there's nothing about that you can't handle it. He is told God telling Cain, you should be able to overcome sin. Don't do it. Don't kill Abel. It's up to you. 
Then, of course, as you know, you know exactly what happens, Cain kills Abel. And again, you wait for the vengeance of this punishing God, shouldn't he avenge it? And instead, Cain is marked with a sign so that nobody should take revenge on him. Again, you have to be imagining their tribes, because the scene here is the escalatory violence of blood vengeance in the desert tribes. That's what they're imagining. They can't imagine the beginning of warfare yet. This is blood vengeance among the desert tribes. You kill one of ours, we kill two of yours. You kill four of ours, you kill eight of Escalatory violence. So what I'm emphasizing here is God's attempt to stop what I'm hyphenating as escalatory violence. So violence escalates exponentially. You have Cain, first of all, killing one, and then you have Lamech. Lamech is about five generations later, towards the end of Genesis chapter 4. And Lamech, you can see him on the right there, he's boasting to his wives, and here's what he says. I have killed a young man for striking me. You strike me, I kill you. That's escalation. And then he's, he mocks, as it were, if Cain's death is avenged sevenfold, you touch Lamech and you'll get 77-fold. Genesis 4 is the parable of the growth of escalatory violence, or the creation, you might say, of escalatory violence. Just to remind you, for example, of what that actually means, here is the rather famous image of the battle standard of Ur. Ur is the you may remember in the Bible, is a city in southern Mesopotamia from which Abraham comes. We're dating it this about 4,600 years ago. If you can see, in the, at least on the bottom register of that banner, look at the chariots. They've already got chariots, four-wheel chariots led by wild mules, onagers. And notice they're trampling on people. Can you see the, the bodies underneath the horses? This is a whole triumph from top to bottom. The king is in the middle of the top of victory, warfare victory. So I'm talking about escalatory violence, and I'm using this almost like it's hyphenated. Escalatory violence. It took us only 3,000 years to get from iron swords 3,000 years to get from iron swords to atomic bombs. We are really good at this. And it could be, you might say, that, well, we, get, we improve everything, I suppose, and maybe we've just improved violence. But the worst day of the Roman legions in the first century never really threatened even the ecosphere of the Mediterranean, because if you try... Uh, if you try a nice steel sword, say a Spanish steel sword, on an olive tree, the olive tree will win, hands down. We, however, can destroy our world. That's one of our finest inventions. So the thesis is that only nonviolent revolution. Now, I, I want to be very careful here. I'm never ever talking about nonviolence. The Romans were all in favor of nonviolence. They would have given Jesus a medal for nonviolence. It's nonviolent rebellion, nonviolent resistance, and programmatically that becomes a nonviolent revolution against violence. So the thesis is that only nonviolent revolution can stop escalatory violence while there is still time because we are always escalating and we have never we have never used what we did not invent let me put this in the wider framework taking it from history back into evolution if you think of evolution as the sea then history is like the waves of the sea. So don't mistake the waves for the sea. About 13, well, he says 0.5, somebody says 0.8, but who's counting? 
13.8 billion years ago, matter, energy, time, and space came into being as the Big Bang. I, I'm asking us, I think, when Paul said, get to know God through creation and Christ, to maybe cross out the word creation and put in the word evolution as the mode of creation. And here's my question. This is the bigger question behind the book. Could, should, nonviolent resistance, I almost like to take that as one word, nonviolent resistance, could it change and transform humanity's evolutionary future? Not just kind of ethical or even religious future, but evolutionary future. Please think about it this way. Think of evolution as like the business face of God. We all kind of have a sort of a professional business face, and then we also have a personal face. I think of evolution as the, the business or professional face of God. And then for Christians, Jesus is the personal face of God. Jesus for Christians is what God looks like in sandals. With a mask, maybe. Okay, give me one second to close down here and I'll go back up there. So the first point is that when violence first appears in the Bible and when concomitantly the word sin first appears in the Bible, you get escalatory violence and God is trying to do everything God can to stop it and failing dismally, clearly, as the story goes on. An interesting footnote, in Jewish tradition, you can see that people are worried about the fact that Cain doesn't get it. Because <laughs> clearly he should be punished, because we know it's, that's what it's all about. So there is a, a legend, I guess you would call it, that later on, one of the descendants of Lamech, which you saw up there, becomes blind. But he's a hunter. Remember, he has a bow and arrows in his hand. Lamech is a hunter. So his son, Jubal-Cain, by, by coincidence, takes him hunting and tells him how to shoot, where to shoot. They hear a rustling in the thickets, and they shoot. Guess who it was? Cain. So finally, Cain is killed without being killed, accidentally, sort of. But yeah, it seems right. So let's face it, we like punishment. We really like punishment. So what I want to look at, I'm going to look at some texts. And I want to ask a very simple question now, our second point. Granted Genesis 4, is there any evidence in the Old Testament itself? I'm not talking about Jesus yet, because I know the Christian solution to the Bible should be that Jesus is the solution to the Bible. That's the Christian answer. We ask, what would Jesus do? We don't ask, what does the Bible say? You see Jesus again and again holding the book. You never see him reading it. He, he may be doing this. He may have it like that to us. And it may well say, I am the truth and the life or something like that. But you never see Jesus reading it. He is the norm of the book. We are Christians. We're not Bible-ians. 
And with all due respect to Islam, when it says we're the people of the book, no, we're not. We're the people with the book. We're the people of the person. What would Jesus do? That's what makes us Christians. Nothing better than anyone else. It doesn't make any criticism. Anyway. That's who we are. All right. But now I'm asking a slightly different question in this first lecture. If you didn't have Jesus, if you didn't have any of that, is there any glimpses in the Old Testament that they're kind of very nervous about this punishing violent God themselves? That's what I want to look at. We've seen one, which is what happens when God refuses to punish Cain for the first murder, but tries to, tries to stop it by putting a mark on him so nobody will touch him, okay? Here's the second one. We're looking at Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch, because as you well know, Penta is five, and like the Pentagon or Pentathlon in Olympics. The, the first five books. Now, I'm looking at the first chapter of the first book and the last chapter, more or less, of the last book, Deuteronomy. So the first chapter of Genesis and the last chapter, almost the last chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28. Chapter they should all read and then weep quietly over it. Because it lays out quite clearly, and without any <laughs> backing off, here's the way it works. If you obey the Lord your God, all things will happen well with you. Now, we're not talking about heaven. <laughs> heaven hasn't been invented yet. We're talking about here below on the earth. If you obey the Lord your God, you'll have fertility of the womb, fertility of the animals, fertility of the land. Your enemies will flee seven ways before you. All very empirical, check-upable stuff. And you get 16 verses of all the good stuff. If you obey the Lord your God, all this good stuff will work. Then you flip and get 64 verses of the bad stuff, which is like the flip of that. If you disobey the Lord your God, you will have infertility of the womb, infertility of the, the draft animals, infertility of the land, and you will flee seven ways before your enemies. Now, when you read that chapter, and do read it. You're looking at the genesis of the whole idea throughout the entire Bible. It's called Deuteronomic theology, or as I called it, sanction theology. A world run by rewards and punishments. Now, if you think, well, this is weird biblical stuff, and if you're not into the Bible, yeah, you wouldn't hear it. Every time you hear somebody saying, what did I do to deserve this? You're thinking Deuteronomically if you never heard of it. And if you want to know in a horrible situation after a hurricane or, or a disaster, what did I do or why me? That's what you're asking. The good old Deuteronomic question. And I even get nervous when I hear somebody announcing I'm truly blessed because my house wasn't touched then is it truly cursed that your neighbor was devastated? I don't know. This is bar none that I know of. The most successful bad theology in the history of the world. <laughs> it must plug into something deep in our psyche and our childhood. That we kind of feel more at home with a punishing, rewarding God, of course, both. But I remind, remind you, in good old Deuteronomy 28, what you got was 16 verses of the goodies and 64 verses of the baddies. Now, that's there, and it's going to go through the entire Bible. It really is, and I can take you through it. That's the way they're going to judge everything. Where are there glimpses in the Bible that maybe this isn't quite working? I mean, this is terribly empirical. You're not saying if you're good, you'll be rewarded in heaven, so you can't prove it. Think for a second. Just pause. Let's confuse this with facts. Israel is 
living on the Levantine coast of the Mediterranean. It's a tiny little tribal enclave. <laughs> the wonder is that it hasn't disappeared along with the Edomites and the Moabites and the Kilobites and all, all the tribal enclaves in the, in the, that didn't go into the gene pool of the Middle East. They're, on, they're clinging to the Levantine coast. They're the link, the hinge between the three then known that they knew, Africa, Europe, and Asia. If they want to get at one another, go through Israel. When, when empire was working northeast between, say, Mesopotamia and Egypt, they're coming right through your backyard. East-west between the Parthians, the Persians, Romans, Romans and, and the, uh, the Persians and Greeks, Romans and Parthians, they're coming right through. The truth is, if Israel had spent their lives on their knees praying, they would still have been slaughtered. It's absolutely false, what we call misinformation, to say that if they're only good, their enemies will flee seven ways before them. It's just not true. Now, that's fair enough. We know that. But I'm asking again, do they get glimpse of this kind of not working? First example. They saw the problem when you had a king like Manasseh, Manasseh, who was, by their judgment, a bad king, and he ruled for 40-plus years. That's not good Euronomic theology. He could have been zapped by about year two. And then there's Josiah, who is about the best king after David, and he dies in battle. So a, a bad king lives too long, a good king dies too soon. Where is Deuteronomy? And it's fascinating because the book of Kings will tell you that story, just the way I just told it to you. And then when you read the book of Chronicles, which is like a cleanup operation conducted after the Babylonian exile when they're getting the Bible sort of set up properly, they have to clean up those two stories. You can read it. And you can watch Chronicles following the book of Kings. He's copying like mad, copying plagiarism is called. And then all of a sudden, he gets to this point. Four new verses are inserted that says, the king of Assyria took Manasseh over to Babylon. That's the giveaway. That's the Babylonians. Over to Babylon. He converts, repents. God takes him back, and he's all right. In other words, they clean up the theology by changing history. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> if your theology isn't working, change history. Just say it didn't happen. And Josiah, what are we going to do with Josiah? You can do the same thing. I'm not mocking this because I understand these people are trying to understand it. You can read Kings here and Chronicles here. They're following. They're using the same archival stuff. Then all of a sudden, they get to Josiah killed in battle. How do we explain it? He's killed by Pharaoh Necho from Egypt. And they say in, the, in Chronicles, Pharaoh Necho was going under command of God, and he told Josiah, don't try to stop me because I'm operating under the command of God. That's, that's the big G, the biblical God, God. Josiah does it. In other words, he disobeys God, and he gets killed. So we've cleaned up the theology by cleaning up the history. First case, they're recognizing the problem. Second case, Job. Job should have finished it off once and forever because that was his purpose. You know the story. The background is the Persian Emperor, is the Persian Empire, when the Persian Emperor has somebody who is kind of like a combination between a secretary of secretary of foreign affairs and the head of the CIA. He's called the Satan. He's not the devil. He goes around the world for God, checking up 
on the satrapies of the Persian Empire. Comes back to heaven to report to God, and God starts the whole problem by saying, have you seen Job? Is he not the holiest man on earth? So God's honor is immediately committed that Job is the holiest man on earth. And Satan says, having read Deuteronomy, of course, he's in it for the goodies. He knows Deuteronomy, that if you obey the Lord your God, you'll get a little, little, little. Which puts God in a kind of a bind. Who's running this world, him or Deuteronomy, as it were? Excuse me. So God says, okay, we run a test. And by the way, poor Job was never let in on this. We just run a test. I'm going to take everything from Job. Everything. His health, his wealth, everything he's got. And we'll see who's right. We'll see whether he is good. So they're running a test case on Job. All right, Job is stripped of everything, and he has four friends, and they are friends, they're absolutely sincere. They are Deuteronomic fundamentalists. <laughs> they're absolutely sincere. They're trying to understand why, what did Job do to bring such a terrible punishment on him? Because clearly, this is the worst thing they could imagine. So he must have done something awful. And they tell Job, would you just repent for whatever awful thing you did? God will forgive you, and you'll be back where you were. We can all go home and have a drink. And they say it again and again and again and again. And Job says again and again, I don't know what I did. I mean, he's not insincere enough to say, whatever I did, I'm sorry for it. Job is honest. They're honest. But all Job can say is, I don't know what I did. He doesn't say, I'm the holiest man on earth. That's God's business. He simply says, I don't know what I did. Now, it's gorgeous Hebrew poetry. Chapter after chapter after chapter, and we, the reader, know it's all baloney. We do, because we've been let into heaven in chapter 1 and 2 and know what's going on. Job doesn't. They don't. But we know the Deuteronomic theology just doesn't work. And at the end, of course, not that we need it, God says, you guys are all wrong, and Job gets all his stuff back. But Job has never told the truth, by the way. The one thing God doesn't tell Job, despite all the kind of the bluster I'm, who he is, this was just an experiment. Please don't take it personally. <laughs> you know, I give you back your camels. What's the problem? Now, that should have ended the children. You should have, been, should have been laughed out of court. Because that's what it was intended to do. Instead, I would say Job became a speed bump on the Deuteronomic superhighway. <laughs> right on. Right on, straight into the New Testament where somebody can say to, to Jesus, looking at a blind man, who sinned this? Obviously, he couldn't. He was born blind. His parents must have sinned. Somebody must be being punished. They saw the problem. Did they have any solution? Now, I want to turn from the last chapter, it's almost the last chapter, of the Torah, Deuteronomy, to the first chapter, Genesis 1, the first chapter. Also, before I begin, this is not simply an argument that the, one, the earlier one must be better than the later one. After the Babylonian exile, in the Restoration, when they're putting together their Bible, organizing their traditions, trying desperately to hold together a people where their temple has been destroyed. By the way, to understand the Persians, the Persians invented the first Marshall Plan. They had a new idea of empire. Instead of the Babylonians or the Assyrians hitting you every springtime and looting you for what you're worth, why couldn't we put everyone back 
on their feet and tax them. It's a brilliant idea. It's the Marshall Plan. It's much better than leaving them prostrate and then we'll go on whatever they got. We loot them every springtime. Old-fashioned empire. This was new-fashioned empire. So, of course, the Jews are sent home under Persian controls, Persian finances. Put your people back together, build your temple, get your law back. And they're organizing the Bible. Now, the first chapter is not the first chapter of the Bible. It's the prologue, the, the preface, the overture. It's that text through which they want you to read every other text that follows. It really wipes out Deuteronomy once and for all. That's what's going on in that creation in seven days. And we got all uptight about it. I said, well, is it really seven days? It's pure poetry. And by poetry, I do not mean that I'm thinking it's poetry, but they really took it literally. The person who wrote Genesis 1, and it's a he because it's from the priestly tradition, it's a he knew exactly what he was doing. And the reason he knew exactly what he was doing is if, again, you read it carefully, you can see it. You can see the cracks in the narrative. And it's the cracks in the narrative that give away the purpose of the writing. For example, when you read Genesis 1, and if you want to be technical, it goes from 1-1 to 2-4-A, but Genesis 1 for short. When you read it, the first thing you notice is the same expressions keep coming up. And God said, let there be. And there was. And God blessed. And there was morning and evening one day. When you're learning Hebrew, it's your dream chapter. You get a couple of words and phrases in and you got the whole thing down. And you think this is going to be easy and then you hit chapter <laughs> three. <laughs> and it's not so easy but the repetition of the same words over and over again is one of the standard refrains that tells you poetry. When you get a refrain that keeps coming up, watch for poetry. So that's one thing. Second thing, second thing, when you're reading carefully, you notice that there's eight chunks of stuff. There's eight times when it reads, and God said, eight. And they're pretty obvious. It's like if somebody went out in the, in the ancient world or the modern and looked around the world, well, at least the ancient world, and saw all this stuff. You have to get the heavens. You have to get the earth. You have to get the seas. You have to get the plants. And you have to get the animals. You know, they have to get everything invented. And they find there's eight chunks of stuff. And here's the second time they begin to see the problem. Because you can't have... An, nine-day week. Somehow or other, eight, eight chunks of stuff have to be squeezed, shoehorned, into six days. Now, these are the clues that tell you what the, what the author is up to. Why doesn't he just have eight? And you can see it, because on day one, and God said. Day two, and God said. Day three, and God said, and God said. Day four, and God said. Day five, and God said. Day six, and God said. And God said. So you double up on the, th what's it, the third day and the sixth day, and you get your eight chunks of stuff into six days. Why is that so important? Or again, you look at the first day, and you think, these people are silly. The first day, God invents day and night. But it's not till the fourth day he gets the sun and the moon. How stupid. No, because you, you can't, if you don't get day and night on the first day, you can't get a week. Everything is going to end with a refrain, and there was evening and morning one day. The week is terribly important. And then you finally get it. You finally get it. We're getting the meaning of creation, not the details. You finally get it. 
We are not the crown of creation. We're the work of a late Friday afternoon. <laughs> the crown of creation is the Sabbath. Yeah, but, but oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is an advertisement for you're supposed to go to the synagogue or the church or you're supposed to go to worship. So let me stop and go in for texts because when all else fails, read the text. What is the Sabbath about? I'm not talking about our Sabbath or our Sunday. We thought, well, they had the Saturday, we'd have a Sunday. We'll show them. Here's what the Sabbath is about. The purpose of it. You ready? Exodus. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Duh, we all knew that. So that. So that is always what the Bible says when it's giving you the meaning of something. So that your ox and your donkey may have relief, and your homeborn slave and the resident alien may be refreshed. There's nothing here about going to the temple, going to the, you know, a few hours off on Saturday so you can go to the synagogue or the church. It's about your ox and your donkey and your slave and the resident alien. That's Exodus. Deuteronomy. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. That's what we all know. Don't stop then. Don't stop there. You are your son or your daughter, are your male or female slave, are your ox or your donkey, are your chickens, no, I put that in, are any of your livestock, are the resident alien, so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Now, by the way, notice this is addressed to the householders of Israel, to the wives and husbands. It's not addressed to the husband, and the wife is one part. It's addressed to the wives and husbands. What it's saying simply is this. Everyone, even your draft animals, your slaves, deserves a rest. Now, maybe we say, oh, come on, we all know that. That's the weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But before you ever get to everyone having enough food, having enough health, having enough education, there had to be enough rest for everyone. And maybe we shouldn't take it for granted that everyone gets it. So the Sabbath is, the Sabbath is not about getting a little time off to worship God. It is worship of God. It's the fair distribution of rest. In fact, we're talking distribution. God is the God of distribution because in this chapter, in this chapter of Genesis, the first thing God does in creating us, female and male alike, is to distribute God's own self to us. The first distribution is we are made in the image and likeness of God. That's distribution. We're made in the image and likeness of God. And therefore, we're put in charge of the world. You can see that. But it's a world run by the Sabbath. This is what I mean by talking about sanction theology in Deuteronomy and Sabbath theology. Now, I'm using Sabbath in the sense it has in the Bible. The fair distribution, in this case, we're talking about rest, the rock-bottom basic of life, before you even get to food and shelter and everything else. Rest. And in case you think, well, you know, that's pushing it a bit on the Sabbath day, it's continued into the Sabbath year. So the Sabbath runs through the Bible, <laughs> to use John's trains. There's the train of the sanction. 
And you can go right through the Bible and you can really say case after case, somebody is punished, somebody is rewarded. It's all there. But so is the Sabbath. It's like another train. And the Sabbath is, how do I put this? The Sabbath is the basis of creation because, cre because just distribution is the basis of creation. That's the claim of Genesis 1. Let me be careful. We tend to use the word justice in ordinary speech to mean retributive justice, punishment. That's when we talk about the Department of Justice is not into distribution. It's basically in the punishment, or sanctions at least. The Uniform Code of Military Justice. In ordinary speech, we use justice as a shorthand for punishment or, or retributive justice. I want you to think, really think. You couldn't have retributive justice even if it wasn't distributed fairly. In the Bible, in speech, forget the Bible, whenever justice is used without any qualification, it means distributive justice, distribution of whatever we're talking about. If you're talking about justice and, say, vaccinations or something, how is it distributed fairly? What would we consider to be an unfair distribution? So justice, when people in the Bible cry out, give us justice, they're not saying, please punish us. They're saying, give us a fair distribution of the world. And of course, what the Bible is claiming is the world belongs to God. And it should be distributed fairly because that's built into the constitution of the world. That's what Genesis is about. The metronome of justice beats on the Sabbath. And it's built at the time itself. Go back and think of that thing with the, um, the Big Bang, time and place. They built it sort of into, into the world itself because they're weak. They didn't have calendars. and How did they know a week? Well, they knew it by the Sabbath. But the Sabbath is about justice. So justice is built into the very fabric of the Bible by Genesis 1. And you'll notice, by the way, that nobody says in Genesis 1, yeah, but supposing we don't do it. Well, now, start thinking. If we are made in the image and likeness of God and you don't act accordingly, what will happen? If you are not a bird and go up to a 30-story building and think you're a bird, what will happen? You will not be punished by the pavement hitting you. That will be a consequence. So let's pause a minute now and get the language. Punishment, consequence. I'm using these as terribly specific terms, not the way parents use them with children. When they use consequence, would mean punishment. Sounds nicer. Punishment comes externally from an action. Consequence comes internally from an action. A drunk driver crashes the car into a tree and is killed. That is a consequence. A drunk driver crashes a car into a tree and is fined by the police. That's a punishment. One's internal, one's external. Sanctioned theology is punishment. It comes externally. If you do this, you'll be punished or you'll be rewarded. Sabbath theology is internal. This is who you are. Go right ahead and try and do anything you want. It's almost as if you got into your car and the message came on, do feel quite free to run out of gas, run out of oil, run, run the car with your brake on. You're quite free to do it, but there will be consequences. Maybe we need that distinction to be sounded again with regard to vaccinations, by the way. Consequences come internally, punishments come externally. So, let me go back. The Sabbath year. Now, you're thinking 
in Sabbath theology, you've been made in the image and likeness of God. God's own distribution to you is God's image and likeness. That's who you are. The Sabbath year. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Now we usually stop there and everyone says, ooh, that's good agricultural you know, practice. You should let your land be, be sallow so the nutrients can, can be. We, we were, we're great on this. Ooh, we're really good on agricultural procedures. But the Bible says so that. So that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave, the wild animals may eat. Huh? Do the same with your vineyard and your olive orchard. Every Sabbath year, you have to let them all go fallow so that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave, the wild animals may eat. Hmm. Now, by the way, one of the fascinating things about reading the Bible, when people start trying to read through the Bible, Genesis is great, marvelous stories. You can imagine them all as a TV series. Exodus is pretty good for a while. Then all of a sudden you run into law. This law, that law, and your eyes start to glaze over. If you could put all these laws in chronological sequence, what you'd have to admire is how marvelously these people spend their lives trying to beat the law. And how the poor law is running along, always scurrying to catch up, and never, never quite catching up. But you can, you can read the logic of the law is to try desperately to maintain an inaugural vision of justice. That's the logic of it. Otherwise, you wouldn't need all this stuff. We're awfully good. And we're not dealing with evil people, we're just dealing with people like us, smart people. The function of law is to avoid justice. Paul would have understood that, by the way. That's why he spends so much time criticizing law. Not because it's wrong, because it's what it can do. Anyway, when you enter the land that I am giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath. It's almost like the... the, the the land is something physical. It deserves a rest. Six years, you need a Sabbath of complete rest for the land. A year of complete rest for the land. It's fascinating. You may eat what the land yields during its Sabbath rest. You, your male and female slaves, your hired and bound laborers who live with you, your livestock and the wild animals. You can, you can eat whatever is there, but you can't can't sow. Now, nobody knows if this is really followed. We really don't. Maybe it's something like, you know, the preamble to our Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. Nothing to do with reality whatsoever. You know, just a beautiful vision. Well, if it isn't then maybe we've got it all wrong. If this is something that you kind of skip, you know, it's nice. It's really nice. It's like everyone created equal. It's, it's a lovely idea, but we don't have to follow it. Then maybe we got it wrong. The Ten Commandments are just suggestions. They're not really serious. You know, any six. Six or seven. But, you know, it's like multiple choice. The Sabbath year, so the first thing on the Sabbath year is to rest for the land. That's the first thing. Second thing, remission of debts. Every seventh year, you shall grant a remission of debts. Then it goes on to do exactly what we know. Then people won't give you any, any loans because they'll see it coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God says, be careful, I'm watching. Remission of debts. A third thing, every Sabbath year, slaves must be freed. Now, what you're talking about here is not a slave economy. You're talking about primarily people who are trapped into debt and sold into slavery 
to protect the family farm, as it were. That's what you're really talking. And you're trying desperately to contain the growth of inequality. That's the logic of all of this stuff. There's a, there's a sentence in, in um, Isaiah. He says, woe to you who add house to house and land to land until you live alone in the midst of the land. They knew exactly what's going on. The thrust of civilization is how do I keep mine and get yours? And the thrust of these laws are like a desperate containing program to mitigate as best you can and contain the growth of inequality. Otherwise, there's no reason you have to keep going with this thing. Just say it once. Sabbath year. Finally, you know it, the Sabbath Jubilee. Every 50 years, every seven sevens, notice the sevens keep coming up. Seven days, seventh year, seven sevens, 50th year. Count off seven weeks of years, seven, this is Leviticus. That's the book we all read regularly, right? Seven times seven, and then so and so. Then everyone goes back to their original ownership. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. Here's what they're imagining. God has distributed the land fairly to all the tribes and families. That's the idea. Now, busybodies, of course, are working very hard to get your land, keep mine, get yours, of course. Every 50 years, go back to zero base. <laughs> and once again, we scholars rush in to put out the fires because that's our job. And we say, well, we don't know they really did that. Well, maybe they did it once after the exile, but we really don't know every 50 years they did it. Well, if they didn't do it, what it means is they're disobeying the heart of the Torah. And I'm back again with my suggestion that maybe the Ten Commandments are simply like red lights in Orlando. You know, if you, if you happen to like to follow them, by all means, but it's kind of a choice, not a decision. So what am I saying? The logic of the law. The logic of the law is this. Creation created a just world. There's no sanctions really in there. It doesn't keep mentioning, and if you don't do this, you'll be punished, and if you don't do this, you'll be... It simply says, this is who you are. As if to say, well, isn't that obvious? If this is who you are, then if you don't do it, you will destroy yourself. It's as obvious, as I said, as when you get into your car, do feel free to drive any way you want, but there's ways that'll work and ways that won't work. And don't blame whoever made your car as a punishment, if you don't do it and run it out of oil or something, days when you used to be able to do that. So Genesis 1 is put up there as the first, as the first, how would I put it, the optics through see, to which they want you to see the whole Bible, including all this punishing stuff that you're going to get at the end of the Torah. They didn't take that out. They didn't. They couldn't probably. But things like, for example, you can't buy, there's, again, I'm back at Leviticus. The statement by God, you cannot buy and sell land because the land belongs to me. <laughs> there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> then how do I get yours? You cannot buy and sell land because the land it belongs to me, it's off the market. Now, land was capital for them. Land was it. If it was capitalism in the ancient world, it was landism. So if land is off the market, ah. now watch what people did. Land is off the market. Hmm. Land, I can't buy and sell land. Loans and foreclosures. Got it. Loans and foreclosures. I give you a loan, 
Okay, at the end of the, the, end of the season, you're in trouble. You don't have enough seed barley for the next year. I will give you a loan, a free, I jumped ahead, sorry. I'll give you a loan. If you default on the loan, I take your land. I'm not buying it, I'm foreclosing. So you can see the, the, the law scurrying along, trying to catch up and saying, no, 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 you can't take interest. Hmm. Well, foreclosure really isn't interest. I'll give it to you free for six months. But I get it. The struggle in the law, the logic of how the law keeps continuing, is because the people who are honestly giving the law as I said, as we honestly gave the Declaration of Independence, even though we were not going to follow it, but we put it down there, and then we have to work it out to get around it. If all of this in the Bible were simply untouched, beautiful, I would think it were, it's like Disney World. What I love about the Bible is I see real people trying to beat it. If there weren't real people trying to beat it, then it's not realistic. It's just not realistic. It's like the Declaration of Independence, uh, um, the Pledge of Allegiance, liberty and justice for all. Nobody gets worried about that. We say it every day. Nobody thinks that children shouldn't be indoctrinated in, in justice. See, we kind of know we're not going to take it seriously. So I do, I'm talking now again just within the Old Testament. What I love about the Old Testament, and I mean it, without which I wouldn't understand the New Testament, is at least they're struggling, because somebody has to be doing this stuff. And you can see it must be real. You have the story of Naboth's vineyard, where the, the king says to Naboth, I'd like to buy your vineyard, give you a very good price for it because it's close to my palace and I'd like to use it. That's a perfectly fair question. And Naboth says, I can't do it. It's against the law. And I have queen who's a Canaanite princess who comes from a different economic theology. It's called free trade. Can't even see what's going on. Why, how, this is disrespect to the king. How do you mean you can't sell your land? So she takes it and has him executed. So it makes no sense. So you can watch people then trying to get around this and saying, okay, can't buy and sell land. But there's always foreclosures and you can't take interest. Okay. Um, foreclosure to take care of that. The logic is the Bible itself is trying to maintain a just world, at least among themselves, at least among themselves, and is quite aware that sanctions really don't cut it. That there's a different vision in Genesis 1. It's who we are. That's why I would ask you to think of the biblical God and to think of human evolution. And my own point is where those two vectors cross one another, because evolution is absolutely fair. I don't like the way it's fair. I don't think it should be fair to viruses. And a few other things I could list too, but I won't. But evolution is absolutely fair. It sounds awfully like the biblical God. In fact, if you were to go to the entire, let's say the Old Testament, stick that. Don't, don't take this literally. Take it just as an exercise. And cross out God and put in evolution. It would make tremendous sense. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and that you will listen again in the future. 
If you enjoyed today's message, we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and share it with others on social media. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If this podcast is a valuable resource to you, we invite you to give to this ministry by making a financial contribution at firstchurchorlando.org forward slash give. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.